Well, why don't we start uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Our Lady of Grace, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so today we're going to focus on, you know, the patristic era is vast and, you know, immense sort of subject. We're going to focus in on two or three of the most important Christological thinkers, Athanasius, Cyril of Alexandria. We'll look a little bit at Leo this evening, um, uh, the Tome of Leo. Uh, and we're going to look at these thinkers in the context of Christological disputes, really the kind of two most important theological crises of the ancient church, the Arian crisis between Arius and Athanasius principally, and the Nestorian crisis between Nestorius and Cyril. And each of these debates was formulative. Out of one, you got the Council of Nicaea declaring the divinity of Christ one in being with the Father, Homo Lucius. And out of the other, you had the Council of Ephesus declaring uh, the unity of the person of Christ as one hypostasis or one personal subject in Ephesus and then later in Chalcedon that that one person has two natures the divine and human nature that are distinguished distinct, distinct not, not mixed so we're just going to try to look at as it were highlights you know the main kind of uh, context and development of the church's central teachings on the person of Jesus that came out of these crises. In the readings, I've prescribed, you know, given a week to studying Irenaeus so that you can see prior to the 4th century, already in the 2nd century, a deeply developed, robust Christology in Irenaeus's thought. Um, there are other people one could read prior to Athanasius. Uh, but when you look at, say, the third, you have the second century, Irenaeus is one of the, great, the greatest theologians in the second century. Third century, you have Tertullian in the West and Origen in the East. Both of them are problematic. They're insightful. They're geniuses. They're trying to articulate the Catholic doctrine. But things are wobbly still in terms of... The, they're using terminology sometimes in a problematic way. There's some errors of thought, etc. It's really in the fourth century you begin to have the real renaissance of ancient Catholic thought. Athanasius, the Cappadocian fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, and then in the, in the, in the West you had Ambrose, uh, Hilary of Poitiers, and the great St. Augustine. So, um, you know, that, there's a kind of larger historical context we, we can just only allude to. But J.D. Kelly does a good job, however dry he is, uh, and he's less dry than some, but he does a good job of, kind of sketching a, a lot of this out for you, you know, quickly. Arius. Let's talk about Arius of Alexander. Arius was probably born around 250. He is supposed to have died in 336. He was a priest from Alexandria, Egypt, in the early 4th century. Now, around the year 318... He becomes involved in a dispute with the bishop of Alexandria, whose name was Alexander. 
Now, Alexander was the mentor of Athanasius. Athanasius is one of the favorite clerics, of, uh, sort of the, the deacon of that bishop, so to speak. In which he maintained, uh, Arius, against the bishop, uh, Alexander, that the Son and Logos is not, we might say, consubstantial or co-eternal with God the Father. But that there was a time, once, before he was begotten, that the Son did not exist. In other words, Arius held that Jesus is a creature. That the Son, now, now note this, the Son and Word pre-existed before his life in the flesh. Right, so there was a time that the Logos existed without the body that he took in the womb of Mary. But that before that, right, bef- the Logos pre-existed spiritually before he took a body. But before that he was created. Now, he was excommunicated for this teaching. But the controversy gave rise to debate throughout the Eastern Roman Empire. That means mostly in the Greek-speaking church. The Latins never really had a problem about this. They sort of just saw that this was a real uh, serious error. And it's a very interesting question why. It's got to do with Tertullian. Tertullian set up a set of set of terminologies to help people think about the Trinity from early on in the West in Latin. So they never got really confused. The Eastern uh, fight was much more complicated. And many bishops came to agree that Arius, if he wasn't outright correct, had some kind of point. There's some kind of subordination of the Son to the Father. Jesus is somehow less than God. Jesus is somehow less than the Father. There were a number of what we might call, what came to be called semi-Arian bishops. Now by the time Emperor Constantine I, Constantine the Great, came into power, when did that happen? In 324. So this, this controversy breaks out in 318. In 324, Constantine, who really is the first Christian emperor, comes into power, and he makes Christianity legal for the first time. So the, you know, the persecutions end, Christianity becomes legal. It's a small percentage of the Roman Empire who are Christian, but it's now permitted to be openly Christian. And at this time, there's already intense debate within the Eastern Church, and there are various local councils springing up. Local councils are much more frequent than they are now. You have local councils, people getting together saying, Arius is right, Arius is partly right, Arius is wrong. Those who say Arius is right are heretics. Those who say Arius is not right are heretics. Okay. Uh, So, he calls a council, which we're going to talk about in a minute, which became the Council of Nicaea, of course, the first great ecumenical council of the Catholic Church to deal with this problem. Before we talk about what the Council of Nicaea taught, let's go into Arius's thought more deeply. Well, uh, things being what they were in the ancient world, you know, um, not all the works of heretics survived, so we only have fragments of Arius's original work, the most important of which is called the Thalia, T-H-A, L-I-A, which means in Greek, the banquet. Now from what scholars can gather, Arius' intelligible theological clarifications or reactions are posed against the idea of the Son as an intermediate hypostasis. Hypostasis in Greek is a word I'm going to use a lot today. It just means a concrete single subject. You and I are all each a hypostasis. I use a hypostasis. Meaning, it, it means the word they use eventually for person. But it means a concrete being, a single, a single concrete subject. Like Peter is one hypostasis, Paul is another hypostasis. So it comes to be like the concrete person. What is Arius reacting against? He's reacting against Origen. Origen wrote in Alexandria, a, a generation before Arius. It seems he's a, probably. I mean, okay. So 
origin, this is, um, you know, usually when I teach this class, I teach a whole class on an hour on origin subordinationism. But origin says, okay, the Father is God, ungenerated. The Son is God, generated. Uh, but he says the Son is eternally less than the Father in power and being. So that the Son is eternally from the Father, but He is of a. He says He's a distinct substance from the Father. This is origin. Right? The Son is a different substance than the Father. So the Son is a second being. You have one being here, who's God the Father. You have a second being here, who is God, who is eternally begotten, and, there, and as a second substance. And then He has the Holy Spirit, who comes forth from the Father and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Origin says is a creature. He's created. And then from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you have the world of angels and, cre and the visible creation, including men. You see the problem? It's a cascading waterfall. You kind of get plenitude of divinity, and it kind of diffuses a little bit, and you get a little bit less divinity, and then you get, sort of here, really diffused divinity. It sort of becomes creaturely in the Holy Spirit, and then you get us. So everything has got to kind of return back up to God. Christ has kind of called us back up the, the waterfall. Now, this, this has um, a, a strong analogy in a contemporary Alexandrian of origins called Plotinus, a great philosopher, great Neoplatonist, and Plotinus is a pagan. But he has a great sort of philosophical system in which you have the one, from the one emanates noose, which is mind, and from mind emanates life, and from life emanates... The, create, the visible world, which is coming forth. So you have a, degrees of emanation. So Origen sort of writing in his thought world at the time, adapting Trinitarian metaphysics to that thought world. It's very problematic. Beautiful at times in Origen, but problematic. So, you know, there's good things in Origen too, but because he thinks the Son is eternally generated from the Father, he's the one who gets that. And the that kind of gets saved. But in any case, origin is problematic. And Arius sees this. Basically, in a way, you can defend that Arius... I mean, this is a Rowan Williams, the current Archbishop of Canterbury, was... I don't think he's a very good Archbishop of Canterbury, if I may say so, but he was an excellent patro patrologist. He studied patrist taught patristics at Oxford. He has a book on Arius, which is excellent. If you want to read one book on Arius, Rowan Williams has a book called Arius. Uh, which is excellent. But anyway, basically he argues, and I think most people now agree, Arius is kind of a, big, a biblical theologian in a, in, a in a certain way. And his point is, you have God, and you have creatures. And there's an absolute divide, and there's one God, right? This is monotheism from the Bible. There's one God who created the heavens and the earth. If you're not God, you're a creature. If you're not a creature, you're God. But there's no, these, these little sort of, you know, diffusions and emanations and hierarchies in between somewhere. There's no vague middle ground. And so Arius' question is, which side of that line do you put Jesus Christ on? Right? He sort of forces the question. Jesus is either God or he's a creature. Period. And that's, that's probably right. Right? So, he puts him on this side of the line. Jesus is a creature. So, let's just sort of then say, uh, talk about three principles in, in, or, in Arius' thought. First of all, he wants to insist, there is no hierarchy 
or plurality in the substance of God. In the substance of God, in the being of God, you don't have multiple beings of God. There's not multiple gods. There's not the first God is the Father and the second God is the Son. There's just one God. And secondly, there's no hierarchy in God. Like, there's the Father and the Son are God, but you could have the Father be more God and then the Son be less God. That doesn't work. There's only one God who is equal to Himself. Therefore, there's no interim degrees between Creator and creature. That's what I just got finished saying. There's an absolute line. That's the first principle. I think on that point, Arius is correct. I mean, he's reinforcing a traditional Judeo-Christian monotheistic doctrine. Secondly, he says, the Logos is not the Father. The Word, the Son, is eternally distinct from the Father. But the Father is truly God. Therefore, the Logos, not being the Father, is also not God. So Logos is created. Alright, so he, he's got right, what has he got right there? The Father and the Son are, are truly distinct. It's not just we don't just call God different names according to like how we feel in the morning or what we sort of, our subjective experience of God based on Jesus. Well, I, I sort of think of God as the Son because I looked into Jesus' eyes and they sort of seemed to, you know, what, no. I mean, he's saying there's an eternal, real distinction between the Father and the Son. But, Arius will say, God is one. The Father alone is God, therefore Jesus is not God. The Logos is created. So, he will say, you know, God pre-exists the Son, and as Father is unchangeable and inalienable, while the Son is produced or made by the Father. Right, we say in the Nicene Creed, God not made. Arius says, the Son is made, He's created. The Son exists due to God's free will. That's to say, the Father produces the Son by a choice. And, therefore, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct hypostases, he says. That mean, means three persons, three subsistent realities, who are distinct also in being. Three persons and three beings. The Father created the Son and the Holy Spirit. The first quote on your sheet I gave you is from the Thalia, where he says this. This is a little fragment we still have at the beginning. God was not eternally a Father. That's really already a very radical statement. God was not eternally a father. There was a time when God was all alone and was not yet a father. Only later did he become a father. The Son did not always exist. Everything created is out of nothing. All existing creatures, all things that are made. So the Word of God Himself came into existence out of nothing. Now that, you see, you hear that, it should be like fingernails going down the chalkboard for you in your faith, I hope. In your senses feed a you just feel those fingernails going down the chalkboard screeching. Okay? And then he has this famous phrase, there was a time when he did not exist. Before he was brought into being, he did not exist. He too had a beginning to his created existence. You have to admire the man's consistency. I mean, he really, you know, it's like he, he did put the car in fifth gear, drive as fast as possible right into the wall. You know, I mean, you, you, there is really a logical consistency in areas that's noble. If you're going to deny the divinity of Christ, you know, he just did this thoroughly, clearly. You know, he, he threw down the gauntlet. The third point, and this is also important for subsequent arguments, is that for Arius there is no soul in Christ, a human soul. 
uh, in distinction from the person, the logos, or the logos himself. Now, what Arius is trying to get at is, in one way, the incarnate logos is one person. Jesus is one person. The logos took flesh. He's insisting on the unity. Now, this is actually, again, against origin. Origin sometimes talks about the logos and then the man Jesus. The logos was in the man Jesus. Arius says, no, the logos... The man Jesus is the Logos made flesh. Everybody knows the word Logos, right? That's from John's Gospel. In the beginning was the word. The word in Greek is Logos. Meaning reason or thought. Word. Intelligible word. So, Arius wants to say, no, you know, Jesus is... Uh, the Word made flesh. That's there's only one person there, but and this is the fourth point. He insists. Uh, th- well, I already said it, sort of. So I'm sort of repeating. Christ is the Logos in the flesh, but without a human soul. Why, why is that important? Because what he's saying is, when the Logos takes flesh, the etern- the Word who is before he exists in the flesh exists as a creature. You almost like might say the first angel. Although he says that Arius thinks after he created all th- uh, created the Logos, he created all things in the Logos. So he creates the Logos, then he creates the Holy Spirit through the Logos, then through the Holy Spirit, then through the Logos and the Holy Spirit he creates the world. Whatever. Alright. That's not possible metaphysically because a creature can't create. But anyway. Um, he's confused about that, but then a lot of other people are too. Okay. Anyway. Uh, once the Logos takes flesh, the Logos is the unique principle of thought and freedom in Christ. So when Jesus in the Gospels is acting or speaking or willing, it's not a human soul present in Him for Arius. There's no human soul in Jesus. It's directly the, the Logos Himself who is willing and acting and thinking. Therefore, and this is important, the Logos is subject to mutability and change when Jesus thinks or wills it's the Logos thinking or willing and undergoing change and suffering. When the Logos says, My God, my God, why have you been in me? It's a creature uttering his cry out to the Father. Therefore, he can't be God because he's a subject to mutability. He says this in the fourth book, part of the Thalia. Uh, so, for example, in the obedience of Christ, you see the mutability of Jesus' will. He's got to adjust to and obey the Father's will. That's the Logos, Arius will say, obeying the Father. But that means he's inferior to the Father. If you obey someone, you're inferior to them ontologically. The Father commands, the Son obeys. I mean, we won't want to necessarily universalize that because... Because some problems of human community, human obedience. But clearly, when we obey God, it's because God is the Creator who governs the world, and therefore superior to us. And, for example, in his ignorance, he points out the places where Jesus says, the, man, the Son of Man does not know the last day. He says, see, he's ignorant. The Logos doesn't know things. They're knowledge reserved to the Father. So the Arians, or people who followed Arius, who can be called Arians, focused upon the obedience and ignorance of Jesus in his humanity as signs that the Logos was created and inferior to the Father. God, meanwhile, is unchanging, they say, uniquely impassable, let's say not subject to suffering, and incomprehensible.
All right, well, the Council of Nicaea convenes in 325. And it was called under Constantine to treat the Arian crisis in the Eastern Church. Now, despite the controversy at the Council, there was debate, the bishops were able to formulate there a creed that explicitly repudiates Arius' doctrine, and which has now become what we call the Nicene Creed, although we have a more expanded version of it. Let me just read what they say. This is from their creed at the time. We believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father. And then they say, uh, I don't know how to put this here. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten of the Father. The, and then they say, the only begotten, that's from John's prologue, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth. Let me go back through it and just comment it, okay? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. God the Father created the world. In the beginning was... The uh, in the beginning God said let there be light and there was light etc and of all things visible and invisible and in one Lord Jesus Christ the Son of God begotten of the Father that's all the biblical terminology we looked at yesterday Jesus is the Lord Yahweh the Son of God begotten of the Father according to the prologue of St. John's Gospel uh, the only begotten so he's uniquely begotten that's again John's Gospel that is, and now they begin to comment, and here they use language that's beyond, that's not from scriptures directly, but was rather an attempt to use language to um, explain the faith of the church. Just like we say transubstantiation is not in the Bible, but it explains that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. So they start using language, theological language. So they say, that is, of the essence of the Father, usia. Right, so what are they arguing against? both Arius and Origen, who say that the Son in Logos is a different substance than the Father. No, they're saying he's the same substance. He is of the very being of the Father. And then how do they explain that? They say, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. So, what's the notion here? Well, there's three things there they've already said. First of all, they do affirm there's a distinction of persons in God. The Son and the Father are truly distinct. There's a distinction of persons. Secondly, they claim there's an equality of the persons. The Son is of the very being of the Father. The Father imparts His very substance and being to the Son by generation. Thirdly, therefore, they say that there's a distinction of persons, there's an equality between the persons. This equality is a derived equality. And this is the great insight and challenge of being an Orthodox theologian on this point to understand that the son is equal to the father one in being with the father he derives his equality and his being from the father we don't get that easily for us the, the notion of derived equality how can you be equal to someone you're dependent on that's the mystery the son is eternally from the father generated from the father dependent on the father in that sense but he's equal to the father he derives from the father all that the Father has and is. In generation, he receives everything from the Father the Father has, the very being and substance of the Father.
that's where you enter into the Trinitarian mystery. So he's so the Father and Son partake equally of a unique essence and being of God. All that the Father has in his being, the Son receives. And then he goes on to say, begotten, not made. Begotten, not made. Right, what's the point there? He's eternally begotten from the Father, receiving from the Father all of his being. He's not created. Again, who's that against? Arius. Directly. The Son is not a creature. The Son has therefore always existed from all eternity to all eternity. There is the eternal Word and Son who proceeds from the Father, equals the Father, who receives from the Father all that the Father is and has. The very being of God is present in the Son. Being one in su- and this is the key phrase, then being this is the end, being one in substance with the Father. The one in substance is homoousius. Homo meaning same, usia, usius meaning substance. When they use this word essence, essence and substance are the same word in Greek. They're not the same in, in Latin. Um, but in Greek they're both usia. Usia. We would say in, in English, usia, right, in that way. Anyway, to say they're homoousia, homoousius, homoousius, they're of the same and identical substance, the very same being, we say one in being with the Father. That's how we translate it today. Usius can mean essence, substance, and being. It's a very dense word. Whenever Aristotle talks about substance, this is the word he's using. The usius. And they say, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth. That's just making the point we saw in Paul yesterday, and in John, and in Hebrews. The Son is He through whom all things were made. According to the Bible, only the God can create. The Son is the Creator, the Logos. God created all things through His Word. Therefore, Jesus is, as the Word and Son, eternally God, true God through whom all things were made. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. That eternal Son, the eternal person of the Son, the Word of God, took flesh and became a human being. Okay, so you're getting all of a sudden the beginnings of a huge Christological problem or, or mystery. What does it mean to say the Son is eternally distinct from the Father, that there is an eternal life in God, of the generation of the Son from the Father, who is His Word. And of course the Holy Spirit is going to come in. They're going to affirm the divinity of the Holy Spirit some years later, the first council of Constantinople. Of, um, yes, Constantinople. And um, so you have a life in God, and then this life of the eternal Word and the eternal Spirit comes into our world by the Son's taking flesh. Okay. Well, so there's theological work to do. You know, the bishops get together and they say, they say this word, homoousius. Right? The Son is eternally one in being with the Father. Now you've got to try to think about it. And that's where Athanasius comes in. He was the first great theologian to try to process Nicaea theologically. Now he wrote, before the Council of Nicaea, before 325, a very famous book called On the Incarnation, which is something worth reading. Uh, it's a beautiful meditation on why God became a man on the incarnation. It's in the Eunice. It's in the Eunice. On, 
It's called On the Incarnation. On the Incarnation. You can find it by a quick search online. And it's not that long. I mean, it's a little book. I mean, what, 50 pages or something? Um, and already there, Athanasius argues something very interesting, which was used to argue subsequently against Arius. So he wrote this when he was young, and he wrote it before the Council of Nicaea. And he, and he argues, look, <laughs> what's at stake in the question of who Jesus is? Ultimately, practically, what's at stake is our salvation. Right? Jesus is the Savior. What's salvation? Yes, it's to be freed from our sins. But ultimately, it's more than that, although it's certainly that. It's to be united with God. So we need to be united with God. That's the whole point of salvation by grace, to be united with God, to see God face to face. If we creatures need to be united by God, with God by another, really Christ is the Savior if He is God united to man and man united to God. He's not the Savior if He's yet another creature. If he's yet another creature that just puts it off, then he's got to be saved by somebody else, and that creature by somebody else, and that creature by somebody else. At some point, to be united with God, you have to be united with God. And the thing is that Christ is that point of union of God and man. Therefore, he alone really is the Savior. Now, Augustine Anoia, who I mentioned just incidentally here, because he happens to talk about this a lot, has a, um, a, a nice way of turning this around and saying, the other aspect of this is, uh, if Christ as a creature can save us, then really it means the universe can save itself. Universe, salvation comes from within creation. That means the creature saves itself and not God. To say Christ is Savior and to say that only God can save us is to say that Christ must be God and man. If you say Jesus is a sort of exalted, create, created figure, ultimately what you're going to end up doing is saying that... Um, Salvation comes from within. These arguments are interesting, but I mean, the point is, Athanasius is already thinking about it in terms of what does it mean to say we're saved. We're saved because God united Himself to our human nature so that we could be united to God. That's his famous idea in the treatise. God united Himself to our human nature so that we could be united to God. Well, anyway, he gets busy. Uh, he became the successor of Alexander at Alexandria. And he gets busy attacking Arius. He was a very vehement polemicist. Um, and writing uh, condemnations of Arian, Arius, Arianism, and bishops who were, he considered semi-Arian or in league with Arius. And he defended and articulated the Nicene faith as orthodoxy. He, he was exiled five times from his episcopacy. Uh, most of those times it was a threat of his own life either by neo-pagan emperors or by uh, Aryan emperors who tried to have him killed or imprisoned uh, he hid out a lot with the monks in rural Egypt who hid him a little bit like if I may be permitted a very um, inappropriate comparison a little like bin Laden you know he had there were all these monasteries out in the desert and uh huh well, yes, Anthony the Great, who was a friend, personal friend of his, and he wrote the great biography of Anthony and helped, therefore, because uh, he then traveled, he was protected also by the Pope in Rome. The Popes uh, were actually on Athanasius' side on this whole dispute. And he uh, fled to Rome a couple of times and he brought the, the book, The Life of Anthony, with him. That's how monasticism started to gain interest in the Western Church, in part, because he brought uh, like, sort of stories about it uh, to, the, to the West. Anyway, um, 
Athanasius' Trinitarian and Christological teachings are particularly present in his so-called orations against the Arians. And what I, I've uh, assigned for you in the units is, I think, Oration 1 or Oration 3. There are four theological orations against the Arians. The fourth one is of disputed authorship. The first three has consensus among scholars. It's Athanasius' writing. So let me talk about three, point, three, three points of, of Athanasius' thought. And hopefully a fourth if I get to it. Okay, what's the problem? How can there be distinction of persons in the one God? How can... We're not going to talk about the Holy Spirit today. You know, not being any disrespect for God the Holy Spirit. Just, we're going to focus on the logo. How can you have the eternal Son and Word of God be eternally distinct from the Father as a personal mystery or reality distinct from the Father and yet be one in being with the Father. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father and not made. He's not a creature. That's the teaching of Nicaea. It's the teaching of John's Gospel and the prologue of John's Gospel. It's the teaching of the Epistle of the Hebrews. It's the teaching of Paul. How, how do we make sense of this? How can He be personally distinct from the Father and yet, and yet be one in being with the Father? Now, Athanasius is the first one to really have... I mean, it's not the first one because it, it already comes from... Okay, it, it already, this analogy already comes from John's Gospel and Justin Martyr in particular uh, in the 2nd century and um, perhaps Irenaeus. But Athanasius is the first to really latch onto the analogy of thought. The Logos. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Logos, John's Gospel says. But the word Logos doesn't mean to say a spoken word, like a, a, a sound. It can mean a thought. In the beginning was conception, thinking, reason. So, spiritual thought. And what Athanasius says is, this is the, the likeness between ourselves and God that's given to us in Scripture to understand how there can be eternal life in God a distinction of persons, and yet one uh, a oneness of being. Um, let's let's consider um, ourselves just for a moment. You know, human persons. In us, there's a spiritual procession, a proceeding forth from the mind of inner thoughts or words, not spoken words in speech acts in sounds. But before that, or more interior than that, not even inner imaginations, but inner spiritual thoughts, which we then exteriorize, first in ourselves through the imagination, I think about a cow, or I think about a, a, I don't know, a tree, and then you can say them, cow, tree, etc. Thought proceeds from the thinker as something distinct from him, and yet as one in being with him. Just as the Father is eternally wise, so the Son proceeds forth from Him eternally as His Word and Wisdom. So think about it. Are your thoughts part of your being? I mean, can I say, my thoughts are part of my person? Uh, you, you can say yes. I mean, they're, they're, your, your thoughts are part of what you are. Right? But they proceed forth from you. I mean, some of us wouldn't want to take too much ownership of our thoughts, right? Because that's just part of the fallibility of our human nature. Our, our thoughts are imperfect, as the scripture says. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. 
it's God's sense, right? But we have the capacity to, to think and thought proceeds for, forth from us as one in being with us. Now, of course, now here's the big dis- distinction. I mean, thought is, for, thought is part of our being, but it's, of course, my thinking is not a person distinct from me. Right? My thought doesn't get up in the morning and look at me and say, you know, you really, you really ought to do some more reading because I'm really feeling underfed today. You know, right? But in God, the mystery of the Logos, the thought that proceeds forth from the Father, from His wisdom, is a person or a mysterious, uh, another, a distinct hypostasis. And yet, like in us, the Logos is one in being with the Father. The Father... Uh, the, the Father, God, uh, the Father, generates the eternal light or, or, or truth of the Son that proceeds forth from the Father, one in being with the Father. Well, anyway, Athanasius starts trying to talk about this. So, if you turn to your sheet, this is the next, uh, the second quotation. So, we're going to read this. Or we'll read the next two quotations. I think you have both of them on there. As we said above, so now we repeat that the divine generation, right, this generation of life in God, must not be compared to the nature of men, nor the Son considered to be part of God. What is he talking about? He's talking about physical generation. He's saying the Son's not a, a quantity, you know, like the, it's not like the arm of a father or, you know, ten pounds off the father or whatever, you know, in the, it's just a, not a physical generation. Nor the generation to imply any passion whatsoever, meaning like emotional passion or emotional or physical suffering. Passion has that both connotations in Greek. God is not as man, for men beget passively, having a transitive nature, a changing nature, which waits for periods by reason of its weakness. But with God this cannot be. For he is not composed out of parts, he is not physical and quantitative, but is impassable and simple. He is but being impassable and simple, he is impassibly and indivisibly father of the Son. This again is strongly evidenced and proved by divine scripture. It goes back to the source of theology, the Word of God. For the Word of God is his Son, and the Son is the Father's Word and Wisdom. So he's saying, if you want to understand what generation is in God, you've got to think about an analogy from human thought. It's the Word and Wisdom of the Father proceeding forth from him, spiritual begetting spiritual begetting. And the word and wisdom is neither creature nor part of him whose word he is, nor an offspring passively begotten. Because when you think, I mean, spiritual thought is not physical. So physical, you can't measure it as like a quantitative part. Uniting then the two titles of Son and Word, Scripture speaks of the Son in order to herald the natural and true offspring of his essence. And on the other hand, that none may think of the offspring humanly while signifying his essence, it calls him word, wisdom, and radiance to teach us that the generation was impassable and eternal and worthy of God. Now, what's he saying there? He's saying uh, essences or natures are transmitted through generation. So like you have a horse that is generated of horses, and the horse generated of horses generates another horse. 
natures are transmitted by generation. So why does it talk about a son in God eternally? Because there's the begetting of divine nature. The nature of God is transmitted from the Father to the Son. So like, you know, as an animal begets an animal. So analogously in a very different way, eternally in a spiritual way, there's the begetting of the Father, of the Son from the Father, eternally. The Son receiving the full nature of the divinity from the Father. But then he says, just so we won't think of it as a material begetting, or physiological maleness or something like that, we have to understand that it's the eternal generation of the Word. Spiritual begetting of the light and wisdom and radiance of God that proceeds from the Father in His Son, the Son being the Word and wisdom of the Father. Now, interestingly, Islam misunderstands this completely. If you look in the Quran, if you read the Quran carefully, over and over again what it says is God has no son, he has no physical body, he cannot beget physically. Right? So, I mean, the, the Muslim idea is that we say that the eternal begetting of the Son is a physiological begetting. But it's just interesting to note that, of course, from the beginning, from John's Gospel onward, the, the notion of affiliation or sonship, transmission of nature in God from the Father to the Son, is understood as generation of the Word, a spiritual begetting, and Athanasius is exactly that point. If we could get the Muslims to understand that we actually believe this, and to get their mind around it, it would help a lot. I mean, I'm not optimistic. I'm just saying, you know, if you, if you happen in the monastery to run into a lot of Muslims, uh, try, to get, try to get the sister to understand this. Anyway. <laughs> I'm sure some do, but in the Quran, the problem is the Quran is an authority because God dictated it, and it tells... It says that we believe this. You see, and it was, it was revealed from before the foundation of the world. Quran was written before the world was created. It's the very divine word of God. And it says that we believe this. So the Quran can't be wrong. So we must believe this. It's not, a very, it's not very helpful. It's, it's, a prison, it's a thought prison. You know, once you get into it, you can't really get out. Anyway. Um, so let's look at the next quote where he talks about this again. For the Son is in the Father, as it has allowed us to know, because the whole being, the word is usia, because the whole being of the Son is proper to the Father's essence. Now, I think he's using usia twice there. So he's probably saying the whole, uh, the whole being of the Son is proper to the Father's being, as radiance from light. So is the radiance of the light of a different essence than the light itself? No. And that's Athanasius' argument. Right? The radiance comes forth from the sun. The light comes forth from the sun. It's just the same substance. It's light from light. Or of course, he's commenting on Nicaea. The sun is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So just as light comes forth from the sun, so the essence of the sun proceeds from the Father as the intelligible splendor of the Father. The light proceeds from the Father. Christ is the light of the Father. And stream from fountain, so that whoso sees the Son, sees what is proper to the Father. That's, of course, Jesus from John 15. Who sees me sees the Father. And knows that the Son's being, because from the Father, is therefore in the Father. Right? Because the Word, the eternal Word, is generated from the Father, having His very being, so the Father and the Son are one in being. Therefore the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. I am in my Father, and my Father is in me. 
John's Gospel. For the Father is in the Son, since the Son is what is from the Father and proper to Him, as the radiance, as in the radiance, the Son, and in the Word, the thought. So just as we are present in our thoughts, so the Father is present in His eternal Word, speaking in His Word all that He is as Father. The whole substance of His being is spoken in the eternal Son. And in the stream, the fountain, for whoso thus contemplates the Son, contemplates what is proper to the Father's essence, and knows that the Father is in the Son. Philip, have you been with me so long you do not know me? Do you not know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? For whereas the form and Godhead, notice again there's there's the word form, probably morphe, I haven't looked in the Greek, but it's probably from uh, Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not deem equality with God, something to grasp. Whereas the form and Godhead of the Father is the being of the Son, it follows that the Son is in the Father and the Father in the Son. Now, Athanasius is, of course, going to insist that because the begetting is immaterial, begetting, it does not imply suffering or mutation, divine change or mutability. So there's an eternal, eternal begetting of the Son without prejudice to the immutable divine essence. God's divine essence is immutable. God is always God. He's unchanging in His eternal splendor without diminishment. And the eternal begetting doesn't diminish the Father. Rather, He gives all that He is immutably as in the splendor of His essence to the Son without any suffering or change or mutability. Okay, so that was a long kind of attempt to show, you know, he's using this beautiful and mysterious analogy from John's Gospel of the Word to talk about what is the begetting of the Son. The second point is this. The Son, for Athanasius, is one in being, our homoousius with the Father, following Nicaea. Yet, if this is the case, and this is interesting, then he has the same will, power, and wisdom as the Son, as the Father. Why is this important? What did Arius say? The Son is created by a choice on God's part. Right? God decides to become a Father. For Arius. He decides to create the Son. And when He creates the Son, by freedom of choice, then the Son becomes, then the Father becomes a Father. God becomes a Father. So there was a time when God was not a Father, there was a time when the Son was not. He decided to create the Son, then He becomes a Father. Athanasius' claim is, because they're one in being, the will of the Father and the Son is one. All that is in the Father is in the Son. Therefore, they share share the same will. But it follows from that that the Son is not generated by will. The Father doesn't wake up one morning and say, I think all today I'll create the Son. No. Actually, just in being the Father, He's eternally generating the Son. There was not when He was not a Father. There was not when the Son was not. And therefore, they share the same activity and will. Now, let's look at this argument. This is the next quote on your page. If he has the the power of will, uh, he's talking about the Father. If the Father has the power of will and his will is effective and suffices for the consistence of the things that come to be, right? So the Father has an all-powerful will. He can create the world. And his word is effective. He speaks and it comes to be. And a framer, he means kind of an architect, like you have uh, the architect has an idea 
a word, a concept through which he creates the building. So God has an eternal concept through which he creates the universe. That word must surely be the living will of the Father and an essential energy and a real word in whom all things both consistent are excellently governed. His point is, when the Father decides to create the world, that implies the Father acting in wisdom and thought. But if the Father is acting in wisdom and thought, and the Son is the eternal wisdom and word of the Father, and when the Father decides to create the world, He's already deciding it in and through His word and wisdom. That's to say, this, the eternal Son is present, the eternal word is present when God creates all things. And that's just John's Gospel. But he's sort of showing, you know, it's, it's inappropriate analogically when you start to talk about God, the mystery of God, to think about the Father creating without wisdom. Or the Father creating without thought. And there's a constant polemic in the Eastern Fathers against Arianism that they'll, they'll use for hundreds of years. Kind of saying, how can you say that God could create... And they, actually, then John Damascene uses this against Islam, interestingly. And he says, you know, you say that there can't be any beginning of the Word in God. But how do you say then that God uh, could create the world without wisdom or without, uh, without thought? But if, and the Muslims will say, well, of course He created with wisdom and thought. But they say, well, if He did, then He created it with His eternal Word. So it's not absurd to say there's an eternal Word in God. You know, so this is, this is, these polemics start in the 8th century. Um, anyway, continue here he says no one can even doubt that he who dispose, that he who disposes is prior to the disposition and things disposed I mean God is in command of the world he commands the things be he, he's disposing them and thus as I said God's creating is second to his begetting he begets his word and through whom he creates all things the word is begotten the word is not made or created for the son implies something proper to him and truly from that blessed and everlasting essence let's say the son comes forth from the essence of the Father and has in himself the essence of the Father transmitted to him through divine generation. But what is from his will, by contrast, comes into existence from without. It's caused from another. Let's say everything created depends on God who causes it to be. And it is framed through his proper offspring uh, who is from it. So all things are created in the Word. It's like, it's the image which you find in Aquinas, you find in a lot of the Fathers too, that God creates the world sort of like an architect thinks out the order of the house. God thinks out the order of created being. But when He thinks that out, He thinks it out in the eternal Word, in the design of His eternal wisdom. And that wisdom, that uncreated wisdom through whom God created all things is the Son. Now that's not something the Fathers made up. That's right in St. Paul. It's in the beginning of Colossians. We read that yesterday. He's the, he's the, the wisdom through whom all God created the world. We, we looked at that passage at the first, first chapter of Colossians. The pre-existent wisdom through whom God made all things. Okay, also this means in effect, therefore, that the Father does not choose to beget the Son in contradiction to Arius. Rather, the Father eternally begets the, the Son as Father. That's just what the Father is. That's what makes God, God the Father. He's eternally Father because He begets the Son. Right? There's not a time when He came to be the Father. God is eternally the Father because He eternally begets the Son. Begetting is intrinsic to His identity. Consequently, 
what Athanasius is moving towards here, though he doesn't say it explicitly, is that the relation between the Father and the Son is constitutive of who each is. The Father is eternally Father because He's begetting the Son and relative to the Son by begetting. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, therefore eternally relative to the Father. And this is where you see in the next generation of theologians, Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, are going to say, what constitutes God are eternal relations that stem from the processions. There's processions of life in God, the begetting of the Word, the spiration of the Holy Spirit. These relations constitute who God is. And that's where you get the whole idea that later is developed in Augustine, through comes to the, it comes west through Hillary into Augustine, and then through Augustine the Cappadocians, it goes the whole tradition down to this day. The church teaches there are true relations in God, real relations between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, constituting who those persons are. The Father is eternally relative to the Son. The Son is eternally relative to the Father. Uh, the third point. Uh, I, I'm terrible. I always go over. Alright, third point, quickly. Uh, this Christology of the divinity of Christ has an important soteriological purpose for Athanasius. This is what I started, started with. Only if Jesus is God made man can we be saved by Christ. If he's a creature, he cannot himself act in unity of agency with the Father to save us from death. He can't act as one with the Father if he's not one with the Father. Salvation is effected in humanity by union with God, and the Incarnation is the promise of God's uniting Himself with us so that we might be united with God. If Jesus is not God, then there's not a unity of God and man in Christ, so only if Christ is both God and man, and only if there's a divine agency, if God is acting in Christ to reconcile the world to Himself, uh, as well as a human agency, are we sure that He's capable of saving us from death, of divinizing human beings by uniting humanity with God? So we'll just finish with the last, uh, with the, well, the, the quote from uh, Book 2, Chapter 70. For with a creature, the devil, himself a creature, would have ever continued to battle, and man, being between the two, had been ever in peril of death, having none in whom and through whom he might be joined to God and delivered from fear. Right? It'd be a battle of Jesus would be another creature alongside the devil. It's a very interesting argument. Right? If Jesus is just a creature, he's sitting there battling with the devil as a creature against a creature. Whence the truth shows us that the, the word is not of things originate, but rather himself their framer. For man had not been deified if joined to a creature, or unless the Son were very God. Nor had man been brought into the Father's presence unless he had been his natural and true word who had put on the body. And as we had not been delivered from sin and the curse unless it had been by nature uh, human flesh which the word put on for we should have nothing in common with what was foreign. In other words, if Jesus didn't really take on true human flesh, we're not really saved. So also the man had not been deified unless the word who became flesh had been by nature from the Father and true and proper to Him, begotten of the Father eternally, of the very essence of the Father, or the nature of the Father, homoousius, one in being, nature, and essence of the Father. Alright, well, well, we'll finish there, but um, that's a brief introduction to Athanasius, but I think it will help as you read him and uh, read about the, the, the Arian dispute. Uh, and revisit the, the, the question later on.